Luke 22, verses 1 to 23. It says this, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the, of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray to them in the uh, betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, uh, The teacher says to you, Where is your guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, uh, so prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of, man go, uh, Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you've given it to us, God, to study and to learn from and to apply to our lives. We thank you that you don't give us uh, meaningless things to do, but everything that you've given us to do has great significance and meaning. And Lord, uh, we do it with purpose to exalt you and to remember the sacrifice that you made for us. God, I pray that um, as we look at your word this evening, that you would speak to our hearts, God, exactly what you want to speak to us. God, that it wouldn't be, again, a, a, a word fashioned by man, but it'd be your Holy Spirit speaking through your scriptures, God. Be with us now as we study your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, I titled this constant, this, this message, Constant Reminders, uh, because, you know, with the Lord's Supper and, and sort of some of the stuff we're going to be looking at with Judas, uh, the word constant really just kept coming to my mind throughout the week. There's a constance uh, to the to way that we're operating. And um, when I think about constant reminders, I think about, uh, you know, for me, I've got like a, a daily checklist that I sort of try and go through 
uh, of things I need to accomplish during a day, typical things that I need to do each day. And so I'll check those off. They're they're a reminder to me. And you might have one on your phone. It like buzzes at you and beeps and says, hey, do this now and do this now or do that now. Um, uh, But we have these constant reminders that we maybe have set up, whether it's uh, whether it's through a phone or alarm clock or whatever, and we've done it with a purpose, right? So that we, we can, not, not so that we can just hear that lovely sound of eh, eh, eh in the morning or, or whatever that's going to wake us up, but rather because we have things to accomplish, things to do, there's a meaning behind the reminder that we have set up for ourselves. Um, and so that's one thing that we're going to be seeing uh, today as we look at, at both the Passover as well as the Lord's Supper is that these things that we do aren't just uh, rituals that were sort of made up and we're carrying on for just for tradition's sake. Uh, they're meant for a purpose to remind us of something, not that we're to do, uh, well, maybe some things that we're to do, but also to remind us of what Christ has done uh, for us, most, uh, most importantly. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And the first thing I want to look at is, uh, is the first few verses. And we're looking at Judas here, and, and just a couple of things to really draw out of, uh, of what we've been given on him. Verses 1 to 6 kind of uh, outline Judas's final uh, betrayal of Jesus or, or his, his, uh, his uh, agreement with the leaders to go ahead and betray Jesus. And I, I found a couple of things that were very interesting about this. The first thing that, that sticks out, and I think it's a, it's a warning to us as people who uh, claim the name Christian or claim to follow Christ or to be his disciple or uh, whatever you want to call that. Uh, it's a warning to us. Um, and, and Luke records it very clearly. He says, um, let's see, which, which verse is this? Uh, verse 3, there we go. Uh, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. Okay, so Luke very clearly outlines that Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples that, that Christ called to follow him during his ministry, okay, this is the one that opened himself up to Satan, that Satan entered into. Okay, so it's important for us as, as Christians to, um, to really know what, what our motives are and who, and who, we, who we are representing and, and what we are representing to other people. The warning to us is is very simple one that one of the twelve betrayed him, and the truth is if you look at um, if you look at Christianity in, in America in a lot of ways um, the the root foundations of a belief in in Christ are that Christ is the only way that we approach the Father. If you look at any statistics on religious surveys or, or whatever you 'll see that uh, there are uh, huge percentages of people that claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And this is just looking at the statistics. This isn't uh, having God's uh, understanding of each soul. But the statistics say that uh, upwards of 70 to 80% of people claim this name Christian, this name follower of Christ. But a much lower percentage, and I haven't looked at the percentage recently, so I don't, uh, you know, I'll just make it up because that's what everyone does when they're giving percentages out <laughs> on the spot. But uh, it's much lower than that the percentage of people who believe that there is one way to approach the Father is much lower than the percentage of people that say they are Christians. This is a warning to us to not assume that 
all who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be a follower of Christ, understand what that means. Judas didn't understand that. He was one of the twelve. And as we've talked about throughout the study of Luke, all of the twelve are like trying to grasp what exactly Jesus is doing with the kingdom of God. Okay, they, they in, this, in the next passage, next week actually, they're going to be uh, arguing with one another about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Okay, so they are struggling to understand what it is Jesus is doing in this time. So there's a, a clear warning to us. Judas was one of the number of the twelve. He's the one that is going to betray Christ to the Romans. We need to check our hearts that the, the things that we're doing, aren't, that we aren't doing them out of selfish ambition or selfish motive, looking for our own good or our own advancement. And if you look at us, if you study Judas any throughout the Gospels, you'll see hints here and there that the truth was Judas was looking to advance himself and would look to do it at any cost. Whether it be holding back uh, money that he would say was to help the poor and we would rather pocket it, or whether it be in this instance that we see today. Here we see that as, as Jesus continues to teach this very powerful message, I mean, remember last week we talked about the fact that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and that's what Jesus is saying. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, the temple is going to be flattened, you know, I think Judas at this moment has just said, you know what, I do not agree with the direction that he is going in. I don't think what he's doing is, is he's rejecting uh, Christ's message in this moment. Saying, I've I got to turn this guy in. He's, he's destructive. He's creating division in our nation. The truth is, that's, that's the word that was spoken over Christ at the beginning of his birth. Uh, Christy may remember, but uh, back when... Um, when Zechariah was speaking over John the Baptist and over Jesus, one of the things he said, oh no, no, actually it was, uh, it was Simeon in the temple. Uh, when Simeon was speaking over Jesus, one of the things he said was, uh, this child will, will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. The fact is, Jesus came with a message that divides. It, it clearly divides. It says, there are those that are following God as the God who saves, and there are those who are using religion to advance their own selves and own ambitions. And so this warning that we have in the scripture today is to not be like the religious or like Judas who are only seeking for opportunities to advance their own selfish ambitions, but rather to be those who recognize that God, our God, is the only one we have open. He is our Savior. He is the only one that can save us. He is our hope and our trust. And um, so that's a huge warning to us as we look around at those that, that claim this name of Christ. You can't just assume that everyone that says, I'm a Christian, is saying that in the right terms. Because following Christ is devoting your whole life to him, forsaking all else to follow Jesus as your Savior. And that's very different than I'm, I'm a Christian because it, it socially helps me and helps me build network and helps me uh, advance my, my ambitions and things. So we have to be careful about that, that we're not like Judas in that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, it's interesting. The, the priests and the scribes, it says, were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. This word... Um, they were seeking in verse, in verse 2. 
is actually, it's, it's, uh, in, in the Greek, it basically has the emphasis of a constant search. Okay? They were continually looking for opportunities to take Jesus down. They were always seeking an opportunity to betray him, to, uh, to turn him over to the authorities. Okay? It was a constant thing on their minds. And what I want to connect that to is, is in verse 6. Okay? So Judas comes on the scene. Judas is entered by Satan, and he goes to the chief priests and the officers, and they make an agreement about a sum of money that's going to be paid for, uh, for giving up the, some particular information about Jesus. And these are the words that, say, uh, that are recorded right after that in verse 6. It says, So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them. And that word again that he uses there is not just he's looking for one opportunity, but he is in a constant watch now for an opportunity to betray Jesus. I thought that was so powerful how um, there were these people that were constantly seeking to destroy Jesus and his ministry throughout his time. And Judas is along sort of associating with Jesus, thinking that that's going to get him to the right spot. And in this moment where he sees that, uh, you know what, I don't think this is going the right direction that I want, he jumps ship and begins seeking constantly with the leaders to betray Jesus. So the question to us is, uh, do we have constant faith in Christ as our Savior? Or are we constantly looking for opportunities for advancement of ourself and our own ideas and our own ambitions? The two very clear warnings to us at the beginning of this passage that we have to be mindful of, we have to examine our hearts, to ask God, Lord, am I seeking to exalt me or am I seeking to exalt you? Because I'm doing it for me, it has no power. And they have the appearance of power. It may appear zealous, which is what Judas enjoyed about this, this uh, following that he was in. It may appear zealous and appear like a movement that's going to go somewhere and be something. But the truth is it had nothing. It had no power because it was about him and his advancement and not about Christ and what God was doing through Christ. So we have to be careful that we have our perspective um, in order. Okay, so um, instead of reflecting on this idea of, of uh, this constant search for, uh, for Christ, you, you know, that's the context, I guess, of, of, the next, of the next passage that we're looking at, is that people are continually looking for an opportunity to betray Christ. And the reason this has been so hard for them is that Christ's popularity is so great that so many people have been around and uh, if they were to try and betray him, they would essentially get themselves in trouble by doing that. So they needed an opportunity where Christ was alone with his disciples, alone in a, in a very personal setting, not in front of crowds, where they could uh, get Jesus and, and orchestrate things as they needed to, to, to hand him over to the authorities. Okay? So that's the context that we're in. So verse 7, picking up in verse 7, in uh, this, this next chunk of scripture, the rest of our time, we're looking at two things. We're looking at the Passover, which is, again, a constant reminder of God as Savior, and also the Lord's Supper, which is exactly the same thing. So what I want to do with these two passages is just outline um, five things that I saw that were uh, similarities between the Passover and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I think there's probably more than this, but these are the ones that stuck out to me and I want to share with you guys. So first of all, Christ is preparing the Passover um, 
with his disciples. In, in verse 7, we see, then, the, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And one thing that's interesting about this whole passage, verses 7 to 13, is that we see again, as has been dem- demonstrated over and over in our study of Luke, and especially in our study of the, the, the events of the Passion Week, is that Jesus is in control of his destination, okay? He's orchestrating the events very clearly and is in complete control of where he is going and what he is doing. You might have noticed some of the language as we looked at verses 7 to 13. He says, um, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So follow him to the house he enters and tell the master, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat my Passover with my disciples. I mean, listen to the language that's being used as he talks to Peter and John about what they're supposed to do. So, okay, uh, you're supposed to go in that city that's currently inhabited by millions and millions of people. You're going to run into a guy that's going to be carrying a jar of water, which wouldn't have been uncommon, but, okay, you're just going to run into a guy with a, a carrying a jar of water, follow that guy to a house, and then tell him that we need a room. Okay, Jesus knows exactly where they're going to be. He's orchestrating these events. And Luke outlines this, Luke uh, emphasizes this very strongly in verse 13. He says, And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Everything Jesus has told them about what they were to do to go and prepare the Passover came true completely. Okay, so Jesus is in complete control of the events. And so, again, that just adds to the context of what we're looking at. But so Judas is trying to, to betray him. It looks like Jesus is in trouble, but we're consciousing that with the fact that Jesus knows exactly what's happening and is in control of every single moment of his final week. All right, so now we're at the Passover and, and what the Passover means and why, why would Jesus uh, choose, really, if, if we acknowledge that Christ is in control of these events, that he is orchestrating them in, in knows completely what's going to happen and is walking through them with full knowledge of what's ahead, why would he allow himself to be betrayed on Passover celebration, during this celebration? And why would he institute this important meal that we will celebrate even tonight uh, on this night? It wasn't random. I think it was for a purpose because there are so many parallels between the Passover and, uh, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross and, and the Lord's Supper celebrating that. So let's look at a few things with the Passover. First thing that we see about the Passover is that it celebrates God as Savior. Okay, so one thing the Passover does is it celebrates God as Savior. You see, the Passover, if you, if you remember the story, is, uh, is when uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, right, and says, the Lord is bringing a judgment upon upon Egypt. It's the 10th judgment at this time. Moses had been doing miracles uh, and, and bringing about various judgments upon Egypt to draw his people out of Egypt, right? And he goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, on, on this coming night, the angel of the Lord is going to pass through Egypt and he's going to take the firstborn son of every family. And what's told to the people of Israel is to take blood of a lamb, okay, a spotless lamb, and put that on the doorposts of your homes. And when the angel of the Lord comes through to take the firstborn of Egypt, your homes will be spared, okay? So God is saving his people. And in fact, he's saving not only his people, but anyone that would be obedient to that command, okay? So 
God is drawing a line in the sand for everyone in that, in that nation. If you choose to align yourself with God, you will be spared. If you choose to align yourself with Egypt, then the firstborn of your family will be killed by the angel of the Lord. We might say, man, that sounds really harsh that God would, uh, you know, have that sort of judgment on, on this people. But remember the one that is bringing this word to them, Moses, right? He was born at a time when Egypt was doing the exact thing to the Hebrews. Every firstborn son was to be cast out after birth. So God doesn't just bring about judgments that are random, okay? He brings them very clearly and with purpose, saying, okay, this is your choice. Are you going to align with the only God, Yahweh, or are you going to align with Egypt? That's your choice. And so the judgment is the same judgment they levied on the people of Israel to take the firstborn son. So what we see is very clearly in the Passover is that God is our Savior. He's the only one that gives us hope. He's the only one that can save us from judgment. And we see throughout that event that God indeed, uh, he saves all the firstborn of Egypt. And as a result, Pharaoh kicks, you know, says, get out of here. And Egypt uh, comes out of, uh, or sorry, Israel comes out of Egypt as a new nation. We'll look at that. So first thing, God is Savior. Second thing is that each of the events, the, the Passover was preceded by not, not just this Passover that we're celebrating, but also by tons of miracles that Moses was doing in the midst of the people. He was sending frogs and locusts and, um, and hailstones and all these things. Uh, Moses had been performing many, many, mir- many, many lesser miracles uh, during that time before the Passover. Okay, so then the, the second thing is that, that the Passover was preceded by other lesser miracles. So God is Savior, preceded by other lesser miracles. The third thing is that the Passover begins a new nation. Okay, it's the start of a new nation. We see that in, in Exodus 12, uh, God, when he's talking about the Passover, when Moses is recording about the Passover, uh, he says that this month shall be your first month. Okay, and the reason he does that is because as he's drawing them out of Egypt, he is starting a new nation, a new people, okay? So their year, their calendar is to be marked by this celebration of the time when they were drawn out of Egypt and became an, their own nation. So the Passover, God is Savior. The, the event itself preceded by other miracles. Third, it's the beginning of a new nation. Fourth, it's freedom from slavery in Egypt. Okay, for 400 years, they'd been enslaved in Egypt. At one time, they had favor from the Pharaoh because, uh, because of Joseph and his position. But once that Pharaoh passed away, the Hebrews began to grow and multiply as God blessed them. And Egypt got, got scared, essentially, of them and started to force them into hard labor. And, and that's what ended up resulting in this conflict that, uh, that ensued. Okay, so God is Savior the event preceded by other miracles, the start of a new nation, freedom from slavery, and finally, the event itself, the celebration of the Passover, um, declares hope to that nation. Because the Passover event is meant to declare hope to the nation. 
that during all their struggles, and, and Israel after the Passover had plenty of struggles to go through, the Passover is a celebration that God is their Savior, bringing them hope that in any circumstance, let's remember how we became a nation. Remember how we became a nation? Oh yeah, that's when uh, the angel of the Lord swept through the town and killed all the firstborn of those that didn't have blood on their doorposts. That's a pretty clear reminder. God is our Savior. God is the one that established our nation. God is our Savior. That celebration declares hope to a nation uh, for the future. Okay, so five things that, that I wanted to point out. God's our Savior. This event is preceded by other miracles. It's the beginning of a new nation. It proclaims freedom from slavery in Egypt. And the, the event itself, the, the celebration of Passover, celebrates uh, and declares hope to a nation. All right, so let's look at uh, the Lord's Supper in a similar in a similar vein. The Lord's Supper we see in verse uh, fourteen to twenty, as God is uh, as Christ is walking through uh, through this message. He uh, he speaks about um, as they begin to celebrate. Sorry, as, as they begin to celebrate the Passover together, he's talking about how. Uh, this this uh, this celebration he's not not going to be able to celebrate until it begins becomes fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And one thing we have to remember, or one thing we have to know about Passover, there's a lot of like cups talked about through this passage. And what happened in Passover as they celebrate is that they would have uh, essentially four, I think it's four or five different cups of wine uh, that would be blessed at various times during the Passover. So the beginning of the meal together would start with. Uh, the Passover, the first cup of just blessing the time together, and then there'd be uh, sort of a, a first course, and then another blessing, uh, a drinking of a cup, and then, you know, three, four, and I think five uh, different cups that would go throughout um, throughout the Passover. So the first cup we read about in Luke is just describing that first cup that's that's had to kick off the Passover meal. So Essentially, it's giving us context for what Jesus is going to institute with the Lord's Supper. It's saying, okay, now we're celebrating the Passover that, that Israel holds so dearly as declaring these truths that God is our Savior, that we're free from slavery, that we have hope for a new nation. Okay, so he's giving us context. That that's, that's the context in which God is, Christ is going to deliver to us a new uh, celebration that we are to uh, to continue on. So he so he does that in uh, in verse nineteen. It says in verse nineteen he took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing he says is that the Lord's supper is now. Uh, the, the bread is a representation of my body given for us. His, his body given for us. It's a powerful image that, uh, that, that he's given us. It's, it's, you know, this, if you imagine this being a, a, a bigger piece of bread, he takes it and, and breaks off little pieces of it, says, this is my body broken for you. And as time after time he has said, uh, he said over and over that he's going to suffer, that he's going to the cross, that he's going to be betrayed. He has declared these things to them 
at, at least half a dozen times that suffering is ahead. That's just what we've got recorded. I'm sure he's even told them more, but he knows where he's going. And as he says this, listen, my body is going to be broken. This is a symbol of that. The bread is a symbol of my body broken for you. It's a symbol of what I'm going to do. It's a symbol of the suffering that I'm going to endure. So the question is, why? Why does he need to endure that? Why does he need to endure this breaking of his body, this suffering that is ahead of him? Why does he need to endure it? It's because of the sin that he's come to redeem us from. See, we are broken. We are sinful individuals. We cannot approach God on our own. We're broken. We have no hope without God. Just as the Passover declared that God is the Savior and that I cannot save myself, so too we're seeing that Christ's body is broken because we can't do anything for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't restore our relationship with the Father. We are broken people. So that's exactly why he uses this image of, I'm going to break this piece of bread because I'm going to break my body for you because you are broken individuals and this is what you need to be restored to God is for me to offer myself, my body, my physical nature and lay it down on the cross for you. So that's the first image he gives us, this, this body broken for us, this suffering that is ahead of him. In verse 20, he uh, goes on and says, And likewise, the cup after that they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. says, there's suffering ahead for me. I'm, I'm going to break my body for you that you might be restored. But Christ knows that not only is suffering ahead for him, but restoration in the beginning of a new people. I think you're maybe hearing some of the echoes of, of similarity to the Passover now. In the Passover, again, we, see, we celebrate God as Savior, right? And here we're saying Jesus is Savior. He's the one that's breaking his body for us. In the Passover, we saw that, uh, that the Passover was preceded by lesser miracles. Well, you know, the, the thing that's ahead of Christ, this suffering and restoration to God is the best thing he can possibly do. That's the best event, most important event of all human history, most important miracle of all human history, is that God came down in the form of a man, gave himself, lovingly humbled himself, offered his body on the cross, And as a result, restores us to God the Father if we place our faith in him. Because that's the best miracle they could possibly have in the world. Is that sinners like us could be restored to God by faith in Christ. It's the best miracle that's ever happened, ever could happen to us. We each know that and can testify that because we know ourselves well enough that we don't deserve it. So in the same way, this amazing miracle was also preceded by miracle after miracle after miracle. Jesus' life, as we've seen through the book of Luke, has been marked by his authority and his, his, uh, his authority over all things. His birth story is miraculous. His authority over death and disease and demons. His claim to forgive people. His picture of the Son of Man returning. His picture of the Son of Man's judgment. His uh, taking on the, the name of the Son of David his claims that he will die and come back. 
his control of the events leading up to his suffering. Many, many miracles preceded this, but this one's going to be the most important. Seeing another parallel with Passover. So God as Savior, this event preceded by uh, lesser miracles. Next thing we saw was that in Passover, uh, the Passover instituted a new nation, right? The beginning of a new nation. God called Israel out of Egypt, established a new nation, gave them a new calendar. Okay, this is going to be the beginning of a new people, a new nation. In the same way, his blood establishes us under a new covenant. We are now people of a new covenant. In the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating that. We're celebrating the fact that we are no longer slaves to this world. We are slaves to Christ. We have been freed from sin and now given ourselves to righteousness. Romans six seventeen says this, But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. We can't do that on our own. It's not possible. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we can be established in this new covenant and walk in this this servanthood of righteousness. We're people of a new covenant. We serve God as a Savior. This, This event that we're talking about was preceded by lesser miracles. We we have freedom from slavery to sin. We're people of a new covenant. And this, this event that we celebrate, the Lord's Supper, again, just like the Passover, it celebrates and declares hope to the people of the church. Christ is coming back again. As we've seen in the past few passages that we've studied, Christ is declaring, listen, I'm going away. I'm going to suffer and die. And there's going to be a period of time, we talked about it last week, the time of the Gentiles, right? There's going to be a period of time where I'm gone. And then I'm going to return. And when I return, you're going to know it, okay? But until that time, we have this institution, this this celebration of what Christ did, this Lord's Supper to celebrate that This is what Christ has done for me. He broke his body because I was broken and needed to be restored to God. He gave it. He humbled himself and gave his life for us. And then he poured out his blood that that ushers me into being a, a person of this new covenant. What a beautiful celebration that he's that he's given us to remember. He says, do this in remembrance of me, constantly reminding yourself of the one you've placed your faith in because your faith is sure in him. It's not just a ritual that we perform just to keep up tradition for tradition's sake. It has distinct and clear meaning for us about why we are, who we are, and where we are. We're to be people of a new covenant people that follow Christ, who offer our lives as he offered his to those around us. As we were talking about earlier, we are people that are called to be desperate for the Lord's presence on this earth. 
So that's what we're celebrating in, in this Lord's Supper is that we have the presence of God in Christ. We are people of a new covenant. We have been established as a new people. It's a celebration of hope for the church that the Christ has paid the penalty of our sin and that he's coming back again for us. So let's be sure that as we take this communion, as we, as we celebrate Christ's death and his resurrection in communion, that we don't look at it and say, well, that's just a bread and it's a symbol and that's, uh, that's some juice and, you know, I just do this, you know. Let's remember what it means because traditions without meaning are meaningless. Okay? And they're just motions that we're going through for no purpose. The fact is, um, God gave the people of Israel these, uh, these celebrations and things for a purpose. They had meaning. They pointed to the truths of who he was. So it wasn't the celebrations that were, um, that were faulty. God had instituted those with purpose and reason and, and background and, and intention. It was the hearts of the people celebrating them that made them detestable to the Lord. So we have to be careful that we don't make tradition into uh, something that we exalt as, as something that we, we just do for tradition's sake. Because then it becomes detestable to the Lord just like anything else. So let's celebrate it knowing that this is what Christ has done for us. If we would place our faith in him, his death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin. His blood poured out establishes us as people of a new covenant. What a beautiful truth that we get to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. So how do we avoid letting the Lord's Supper lose its, its meaning to us? I think there's a couple of things. And uh, the first is that we, we preach to ourselves and to one another the truth of Christ and what he's done for us. We tell each other constantly in word and in deed, you're a sinner, you're broken, but Christ has restored you and made you something better than you ever could have possibly been on your own. He's made you the righteousness of God. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, how amazing is it that when we accept Christ as our Savior, when we let Him take complete control of our life, the Holy Spirit humbles Himself and lives within us. We got to tell each other that. That's good news. That God would reside within me, that is good news. That His presence would be among us, that is good news. We have to preach that to ourselves. We have to tell that to one another to encourage each other in truth and in love in that. That involves a number of things. And uh, one of them, and you know, I think that's, that's huge as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is that, uh, again, this isn't just a symbol, but re- reflect on the, the meaning of the bread, right? It's Christ's body broken for your sin. So when you take it, this is something I try and do, and when I, when I do, it's helpful, but sometimes I don't. I get caught up in the tradition. 
But think about the fact that you're a sinner. If Christ didn't break his body for you, you had no hope. So confess to God as you take this bread. Confess to him that you're a sinner, that you're broken, that you failed him this week, that you weren't as bold as you should have been, that you did wrong things this week. I don't know what they were, but you did them. Confess to God those things. Confess to him that you're broken without him as you take that piece of bread. And then don't leave yourself in hopelessness, though. Because <laughs> if you just dwell on the fact that you're a sinner, you're just going to be stuck in hopelessness. The, the second part of the symbol is this blood that establishes you as a person of a new covenant. That sin, that grossness, that stickiness of your sin that entangles in you, it's washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. It's washed clean. So preach those things to, to yourself and to one another. We have to confess that we're sinners. We also have to encourage one another that the presence of God can live in us by his grace through his blood. So the first thing is to preach to ourselves this truth. The second is to give our lives as living sacrifices to God. To live out what we say we are. To not just say to ourselves, this is who we are, this is our identity, this is what we're about, this is, this is who God has made us. But actually take on the very nature of Christ, like we were talking about earlier, that we would have desperation for those who don't have fellowship around this table. They don't have fellowship around this, uh, this great blessing that we have in Christ. We have desperation for those who are trusting in the things of this world to help them just endure life until they die. We have desperation that there's more for them. That Christ has a good and perfect plan for every soul on this earth. And so there's so many around us that we need to lay our lives down for, pour our hearts out for them. So let's preach to ourselves this truth that we're sinners, but we're saved in the blood of Christ. But also let's live this out, live this this. Uh, life out in front of the people that God has called us to do so. I think that's how we uh, avoid letting the Lord's Supper lose its, its meaning and, and become a tradition. So again, the Lord's Supper is, is not just an, a, a tradition that we celebrate each week. It's, it's a symbol of what God has done for us and of our hope in Him for the future. It tells us that God is our Savior and God alone is our Savior. It establishes us as people of a new covenant. It frees us from slavery to sin, gives us a hope and a future in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. He's the reason we celebrate. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason we partake in this tradition each week of taking the bread and chewing it in our mouths and washing it away with this this juice. God, we declare by doing this together until you come that you are Savior, you are God, 
and that we are not. And we also declare that we are sinners, but you have saved us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Help us not make this beautiful, important symbol into a tradition. Help us celebrate it with pure hearts. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.